Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? 1 Thessalonians 5, that's found on page 1257. As well as Lord's Day 16, which can be found on page 217 in your Forms and Prayers book. First Thessalonians provides in chapter 5 a dialogue about the day of the Lord and how it will come, and it provides a setting there. We're going to read from there just after asking for God's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would give to us an understanding of the truths of your word, and specifically here as we contemplate the, the, the death, the burial of Christ, as well as our own. And we pray for strength and comfort. We pray for understanding that you would give to us in and through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 5. We'll read the first 11 verses. Our, our focus is on verses 9 through 10, 9 and 10 of 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation." And here's our text. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. In in Thessalonica, in the situation there, there was much distress about the the coming of the Lord, and had they missed it, had he come, what was the cause of this delay, what was to happen to those who had died before the coming of the Lord. And so all these, these things are being dealt with about when the Lord will come again, when and how it will happen to be ready to be those of the day. And then we see in the, those verses there that we are not destined for wrath. And he, Paul's talking there with that, that emphasis on the, the way that death affects us. What does death mean? And will death cause us to fall into wrath? And he is saying it will not. God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation through Christ's own death. Now we turn to Lord's Day 16 as it summarizes what God's word teaches about the death of Christ as well as our own death in light of what Christ has done. Why did Christ have to suffer death? Because God's justice and truth require it. Nothing else could pay for our sins except the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testifies that he really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? 
Our death is not a payment for our sins, but only a dying to sins and an entering into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? By his power, our old man is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. Why does the creed add he descended into hell? To assure me, during attacks of deepest dread and temptation, that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. People of God, as we continue through the Heidelberg Catechism and through what we profess about Christ and his life, we find this lesson from the Lord's Day focusing on the death and burial of Christ. And so many of these themes and topics are very similar to what has gone before in this prior Lord's Day on the suffering of Christ. And we sort of see this is part two to that idea of what his sufferings were and what he has accomplished today or here on the cross. The topic we deal with is one that isn't one that's pleasant to us, the idea of death and burial, and not only Christ's, but, but our own, and specifically how Christ's death and burial affect our own. Not only what it means for us, but, but how it has transformed what our death might mean. And so what we'll see today is that Christ's death, burial, and descent affect our own, that they assure us that our death is our ascent. Our burial is only for our sinful nature, and our benefit is heaven's joys instead of hell's torment. And we'll see that in our first point under the broad question, that there will be several sub-points to this, but the broad question, why death? Why death? So first we'll look at why the death of Christ, why the burial of Christ, and then why our own in this world in which we live. Why did Christ, first of all, have to suffer death? This is a good question. It's a good question. It may seem very familiar to us, since this is just what we know, but it is a good question because punishments come in many varieties and many forms. Why couldn't Jesus just have been flogged? Why couldn't he just have been forsaken? Why couldn't he have just endured suffering of a a different kind? Why did it have to go all the way to death? Why even in the Apostles' Creed do we say that he died? What's the significance to the death of Christ? Well, it's, as the Catechism says, because God's justice and truth require it. Didn't God tell Adam that to eat of the fruit would be death? And he did. Didn't God say in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death? Didn't the sacrificial system show that blood is the only thing that atones for sin, and it's the blood of a sacrifice? Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, God's justice is perfect. And why is death required there? Because sin is the ultimate rebellion against God. And and what is the most that a man can pay? Well, it's his life. And not just his physical life. His his whole life. Man was created to be an everlasting figure. Not in the sense that we we had a beginning, we're not eternal. But we we were created where there is no end to man. 
Our souls continue. And so the sin that by which we rebelled against God required what man had to give, and, and, and in essence that was his life itself, the eternity of it, the everlastingness of it, that it would not have an end, that is what he lost. That is what he must give because he sinned and fell and continues to sin. God's justice is perfect. You see, what God didn't just do is decide arbitrarily, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make, I'm going to make death the punishment for sin just because. No, it's because it's fitting. It's because it's right. And we have that full assurance and confidence because our God is good. Our God is perfect. Our God is just. He doesn't punish unduly. He doesn't require more than what was to be offered. And so it's death. Death is the punishment for sin because it's fitting. And so Jesus came to pay that debt. And so the answer there is quite simple. The math is quite simple. It adds up. To pay the debt of sin was death. So Christ needed to die. He, and he needed to bear an eternal weight of that which he did through his divine nature and the suffering in this life. Christ had to come, he had to suffer, he had to die, and he had to walk every aspect of life. In short, he had to go to the grave, his heart had to stop, his lungs couldn't breathe, he needed to go and prove faithful throughout all of life. That's what was required. So why did Christ die? Why was it required? Because God's justice and truth demand it. It's the only payment. And so we see that answer. But why burial? Okay, Christ died because God's justice demanded it. Why do we profess that he died, that he was, he was crucified, dead, and now buried? What's the significance of that? The answer seems, it could seem to us a bit lame, maybe. It's not, but it might appear that way. Why was he buried? Well, his burial testifies that he really died. Is it, a, is it a bit redundant? Why make such a point of that? Well, it's the full assurance that Christ went to the end. A while ago, when we were going through the beginning of Luke, we had talked about Jesus being presented by his parents in the temple and how he was even then fulfilling all righteousness. And we used the word there, this was a while ago, but we used the word there that Christ was thorough. He was thorough. His life was, covered all the bases, went through every step. And we can apply that same point here to why was he buried? Because his life and ministry was thorough. He accomplished it all. And he went through every step that we do. You see, the reason that we can have confidence in light of the grave is because Christ died and was laid in a grave and overcome the grave. He overcame that burial. Back in those days, they place bodies generally in a tomb and seal it. Today, we fittingly lower a body to the earth, into the earth and cover it. And yet, the Christian way of understanding that is that what's lowered there for a believer isn't the end of that person. It's a seed that's planted that will sprout up again. Why? Because Christ conquered the tomb. Christ conquered the grave. He was laid in it. He was buried. 
So that's part of the answer. Part of it is that we confess he was buried because it's that final, and, and the intention, this is obvious and intentional, it was the final nail in the coffin of his suffering. That's the burial and death of Christ. It was the nail in the coffin. It ended it. It was the final answer. He was thorough. He accomplished all he needed to do. So that's part of it. But then there's another part, and that's that it refutes by confessing that he was buried. It, it refutes the claims of those who want to deny Jesus, whether it's to deny that he really died. And some will come at it this way. They'll deny the supernatural. They'll deny that Christ could be, could be resurrected. And so what they'll say is, no, he never died. And so he could have appeared to others after the, the crucifixion, but he didn't actually die from that. And there are others who give such types of ideas. Most of them end up actually being quite ridiculous, and we should understand that as Christians, that we shouldn't shy, and fe- shy away in fear of those who would say that, no, there's no historical proof for what you believe. History's not on your side when, in fact, it is. Such ridiculous theories like Jesus swooned on the cross. He had gone through a lot, and so it appeared as if he was dead, and they took him off, he wasn't truly, and they placed him in the, in the tomb, and in a cold tomb he revived. Boy, that's what are the medicinal properties of such a tomb, to take someone who had been flogged, who had been crucified, and, and been stuck with a spear where all the fluids came out of him, been pronounced dead by Romans who knew what they were doing. I guess that would have been quite an amazing tomb, quite a rejuvenation spot to be able to let one like that be able to move away the stone in front of that tomb. You see, to to confess that he was buried shows that he, yes, as the catechism said, really died. And he was laid in a tomb. And we know that there were those who had believed in him who came and took his body and wrapped it in the cloths with the spices and prepared it for death, who handled his body, and it was a dead body. It was a corpse. He was thorough. Defends against those who would deny what had happened. His body... And its death is significant because he really died for us. And there really was a wooden cross, and there really was a tomb. It was really sealed, and the grave had, had clutched its mouth over Christ. And that's the beauty of what we profess as the confession of our faith goes on, that he, he broke free of the bonds of the grave. The reason the grave doesn't frighten the believer is because Christ went through that grave. Know that even as we in the sadness of times lay our loved ones to rest. Know that that happened to Christ's body. And look what happened with him. Take comfort through that. And that's why we see the importance of confessing even these things, that he died and was buried But then the Catechism moves to another good question. Why must we die? Why must we die? Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? The reason it's a good uh, question is considering what we profess. Christ's death has fully paid for all our sins. Our death is not a response of our, our sin, as if we're being judged as if there was remaining one little element, one little final sliver that we needed to, be, to pay, that we need to be punished for. And I think we can get this wrong at times. 
you know, we, we could ask, well, why, why does a Christian need to die? And I think we would might want to respond and say, well, the wages of sin is death. We see the problem with that? We've, in the Catechism, gone through great lengths to say all debt's paid in Christ. There's no debt remaining. And if that's the case, then do Christians, do we die now because we must pay a penalty of sin? No. Our death is in no way a punishment for our sin in that sense. But then we ask, then the Catechism asks, so then why do we die? Isn't death then a a final witness that Christ really didn't accomplish all that we still have to die now? And that's why the Catechism gives the answer of what it is. Our death, notice, is not a payment for our sins. But, and then it adds, adds that word, but only. It's exclusively this, a dying to sins and an entering into eternal life. Death for us has been transformed. It isn't a punishment for us. It isn't a remaining balance. It isn't something that we had, that we had an outstanding balance that need to be paid. Rather, death is an ascent. Through Christ's descent into the grave, for us, death isn't a descent, it's an ascent. We go to the Father. It's been transformed then. Now that doesn't mean it's not a trial, and don't get that wrong. You know, you could read this answer and think it's, it's rather cold. It doesn't recognize how grievous death is, and death is still grievous. No one would say, and let it never be said, that death isn't a final trial that believers face. It certainly is. God hasn't removed trials from us, but what he's removed from death is any element of a payment of sin. That's rather freeing for us, isn't it? To know that at the time of death, a believer has full confidence that it's already been paid in Christ, and it always goes back to Christ. You see, we can at times think that our death is that remaining sin, and in that sense, what we've really done is denied the full satisfaction of Christ. And it's not. So let's speak of it as what it is. Death is still a grievous, broken element in the world because of this curse, because of sin, yes. And in that sense, it is tied to sin. But for us, it isn't payment, it isn't punishment. It's a passing through. A trial, one that's difficult and hard at times, but nevertheless, no punishment. All our sins are paid in Jesus. And so, you can see in the verses the Catechism lists lists the the comfort we have as believers. I'm going to read some of them. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We've passed through the judgment that was death and to life already. Philippians 1, 21 through 23, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. It's a, it's a pathway that death is. It's a journey to the fullness of the riches of Christ. 
And then our text for Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So that's our first point, covering all those aspects of why death, why Christ's death, why his burial, why our death. Now we look at what benefit is Christ's death, which we've already been doing, but the Catechism asks what further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross. We've already went over why Jesus needed to die, but this answer shows what his death means for you. And what is suffering and death accomplish? What we see here is that as far as our sinful nature is concerned and it's standing before God, its lordship has passed to another. It was crucified on the cross with Christ. And as far as we are concerned and what we had to pay, we were nailed to the cross with Jesus and we died his death and we were buried in his tomb because he so united us to himself and walked that path and imputed all of that, credited all that to us. It's as if we've done it. And so as far as mastery is concerned, the benefit of this is that we've been removed from the mastery of sin. We aren't enslaved to it any longer. Our spirits, our souls have been set free because of this and the benefit that we receive in Christ's death and even his burial The evil desires of your hearts will no longer rule over you completely. And in fact, that nature is put to death in Christ. The mastery is now Christ and his alone. He is our Lord. That's one element then to the benefits. It's one of mastery. It's one of who owns us. It's no longer sin and the grave and the devil. It's Christ and it's life. What about service? What does the benefits of Christ do for our service? It's that we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. This is the beauty of our following in Christ's footsteps. Jesus' sacrifice was for atonement, and he lived a life of it. He was a living sacrifice all the way to the end for atonement's sake. We don't offer atonement in our sacrifice, yet we still offer a sacrifice we still follow in the way of Christ. Our sacrifice isn't one that atones for our sin, but it is one that is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And it's rightly called a sacrifice. It's hard. It demands our life. We are a sacrifice. We we, we follow in Christ. We bear our cross. And we have our sins forgiven there. And we live, as Romans 12.1 says, as a living sacrifice before God. Paul tells the believers there to present themselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our entire beings belong to God, and thus our entire life is one of a living sacrifice. And that, doesn't, that puts us in the path of Christ. And that's what I want us to see. Just like Christ lived a life of sacrifice, so do we. But the the accomplishment is different. He accomplished atonement. What do we accomplish? Praise and thanksgiving. Gratitude towards God. But both are sacrifices. And these are the benefits that we receive from Christ. But then last, why the descent to hell? Why the descent to hell? Why does the creed add, he descended into hell? This question and answer is one of the most misunderstood in the Heidelberg Catechism and one in which probably most take objection to what's confessed there. 
And so first I want to deal with that dilemma. I want to deal with that argument and, the, and what's going on there so we can understand what we're actually saying. And then I want us to see the beauty of it because often we miss the beauty of what's being professed because of this dilemma, because of this controversy. What does this mean? As for its meaning, it's true. We don't find this in the early, in the early accounts of the Apostles' Creed. It was added later. It's true it wasn't then original to the first the first sayings and professions of the Apostles' Creed. And it's also true that there are those who take a different interpretation of it. They would apply it differently than we do, and then the Catechism does here, and I want to go over what and how the, it is taken and applied. Some, like the Roman Catholics, believe that this was Christ going down into what's called limbo. That according to the Roman Catholic Church, Christ actually descended into that place, into the underworld. He remained there so long as his body rested in the grave. And what he was doing is he was freeing the souls of the saints who had remained there. And they were caught, and that's where you know, caught in limbo. That's where they were. They were in this in-between. They weren't in hell. They weren't in heaven. They were in limbo. And, and Jesus went there, and he freed those souls who were waiting, who were waiting for this, this freedom. That's what the Roman Catholics will say. Others will believe and say through this that Jesus did truly go into hell as a punishment. He descended into hell, and it was the place of the punishment, and there he was further punished, is what some will say. Others, like Lutherans, might say that Christ truly went down into hell, but not, as, not in a way to, be, to, be further, uh, to further suffer and be judged. They would say that Christ's descent into hell, and they would say he actually went there, but that that was the first step of his, his exaltation, meaning that he went down there to basically parade himself before those who didn't believe and say, I am victorious. It was a victory parade be, be, between those who had not believed or seen him. So he was praising himself in that sense. It was that victory march he had accomplished all that he had came to do, and he was going before those who had never believed to show them the, the failure of their belief. Many theologians hold that Christ, before his resurrection, whether in soul, alone, or body also, went down to the underworld to preach the gospel to those who died in their sins, to give to them an opportunity to repent and believe. That's what... The, the differing views and takes on Christ descended into hell might be. Our catechism reflects something different. We reflect the teaching of John Calvin, in which we would say, which I would say is the reflection of Scripture. Christ did not descend into hell. He did not go to the place of hell and torment. And, and scripturally, why can we say that? Well, think of what Jesus said on the cross. What did he say? It is finished. What did he say to the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. What he also did is followed the same path, or blazed the path that we would follow. He, upon his death, didn't go to hell. He had paid it. He'd finished it. And so he went to heaven, just like we do. Just like the saints who die, they go straight to heaven as Jesus did, because he had suffered hell already. So when we profess that he descended into hell, as we saw last time, we believe that this was his suffering throughout his whole life, but especially at the end, he suffered the torment and paid the debt. That then might make you ask, why don't we adjust the creed? Why do we say it this way? Is there a benefit to retain this language? And we would argue there is. 
there's certainly a benefit to have this in our creed, and what's that? It's, again, that idea of thorough. You see, by retaining the language that Jesus descended into hell, we make unmistakably clear what he suffered. We show in our times of doubt, and this is the beauty of it, that what we needed to pay in our sin was hell, and what did Christ pay? Hell. That's why it's important that we say it. You see, otherwise, could we question, do the currencies match? Jesus didn't really suffer hell. We don't profess that. So we just profess he suffered on this earth. Well, does that pay the debt of hell? You see, by retaining this in our profession, we see what was required was hell. He paid hell. So that's the debate. But listen to the beauty. Listen to the beauty of this. The answer of the catechism. To assure me, during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from the hellish anguish and torment. It's a beautiful way of describing what Scripture teaches and what Christ did. It assures us. It assures us that he suffered hell on our behalf. And and notice it's during those times of deepest dread. Acknowledging that we go through such times, don't we? Times of temptation, times to doubt, times of dread when we especially might be faced with some kind of illness or even in old age and question, well, what's beyond this? Well, this assures you in those times of utter turmoil, that Christ suffered, he died, he was buried, and he covered all of hell. There's nothing for you to offer. Do you have a fear of hell? Do you have that dread? Do you struggle with assurance this is the place for you to go? How much is packed into what we profess in the life of Christ? He paid it all. And that's really the point. It's really what the Apostles' Creed continues to drive home in what we're confessing is our belief. It's Christ. He paid it all. And what's the benefit for for us? It's comfort. It's assurance. That Christ suffered unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul. You see... How does Christ's death, burial, and descent affect our own? They assure us that our death is our ascent, our burial is only for our sinful nature, and our benefit is heaven's joys instead of hell's torment. Put that before your hearts today. Trust in that in not only your own suffering, but those of your your loved ones. Hold to this truth as we will all face that final trial. Unless the Lord comes, we face our death. It's there on the horizon. There was a a concept that used to be more prevalent than it is in our day, but that was to wrestle with that and the concept of dying well. Are we going to be those to die well? Are we going to be those who are prepared and ready? How How do you die well? How are you prepared and ready? It's this profession. Knowing what Christ has done. Trusting in it alone. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord God, we are thankful for the blessing that it is to, to know in truth that, Lord Jesus, you died, that you were buried, and that through what you had done on this earth, you have paid hell for your people. Let this truth reign in us and give to us strength. Let it give to us understanding of our own death and help it to be a source that helps us to die well with Christ on our lips, with Christ in our thoughts. And may we give a good account of ourselves as we walk through this earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.